0: Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. That was the famous line spoken by Bill Bixby, who played Doc Bruce Banner in the popular TV series, The Incredible Hulk. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Mr. McGee, played by Jack Coven, was a relentless tabloid reporter with suspicion that there was some connection between Doc Bruce Banner and a green-like creature who had been spotted. Dr. Banner, Dr. Banner's demolished laboratory made him extremely curious, and he was determined to find out who and where this big green creature came from. He was determined to get to the bottom of the mystery and so he made it his life's purpose to harass and to intimidate Doc Bruce Banner. That was a huge mistake. Because just as Doc Bruce Banner warned him he wouldn't like the consequences if he made him angry. Because when Bill Bixby got angry, Lou Ferrigno showed up. And Lou Ferrigno was a big green hulk of muscle and uncontrollable rage. People get angry. And when people get angry, we're very similar to Lou Ferrigno. We become uncontrollable and we want to get even. But the Bible makes it clear that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not accomplish God's purpose in the world. And most of the time, man's anger is justifiable. More often than not, man's anger is a response to an injustice. But the problem with human anger is that our anger is not measured. Our anger is often imbalanced and almost always exaggerated. In other words, human rage is often not righteous. But God's anger is always righteous. God's anger is always just. Interestingly enough, Psalms chapter seven verse 11 teaches us this, that God is angry with the wicked, listen to this, every day. You heard that right, God is angry every day. (laughs) God has been angry every day since the book of Genesis. And in our text today Paul teaches us that God's anger against the unrighteous persists even to this very day. He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. J.I. Packer summarizes this way: he says, God's wrath in the Bible is never of the capricious, self-indulgent, or irritable sort that human anger can so often be. Instead, God's wrath is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God's anger is always right and necessary. Not only that, God's anger is proportionate, doling out consequences in proportion to human sinfulness. God's anger is measured. God's wrath is always under complete control, never superfluous, always just enough to make his displeasure felt and known. Paul here says that God makes his displeasure known against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people. He doesn't necessarily seek to make his anger known or revealed to people themselves. God seeks to make his disapproval known against human ungodliness and unrighteousness. Why? Because they suppress, the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. The Greek word here for suppress means to prevent, to hinder, to restrain, and to resist. This is the unrighteousness that unleashes the wrath of God. It is not drunkenness, it is not murder, it is not sexual immorality, it is not lies per se. The main problem that God has with humanity is that we are determined to resist the truth. To suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppression is also a psychological term. It refers to the conscious avoidance of thoughts, feelings, or ideas that threaten an individual's self-concept. In other words, the unbeliever is one who resists the truth of God because the truth of God exposes and annihilates her self-made and self-indulgent ego, her concept. herself the truth of God tells him that he is not who he purports to be that her life to this point is a complete lie that there is more to life and more to him than he knows and that her appearances and her self-confidence is wholly unsupported by the truth it makes people very uncomfortable because the truth of God counters the lies of mankind. The truth of God calls into question humanity's power of self-governance and self-direction. The truth of God refuses to acknowledge a humanity that is wholly separate and independent of God himself. The truth of God makes war against self-delusion and self-deception. The truth of God rejects all carnal arguments and all self-justification. The truth of God deflates humanity's overblown opinions about itself, its powers, and its inherent goodness. The truth of God. And the fact of the matter is that for most of humanity, the truth of God is very annoying. causes anxiety because it leaves one feeling vulnerable and dizzied by the existential truth that he is not in control, not in control of his life, not in control of his death, not in control of his destiny. The truth of God places the ego in check and no one likes to be put in check. So why does God check check us? Why is God being such a joy kill? Why is God dissatisfied with the fact that I have made something of my life and of myself, that I figured it all out? Why is God angry with that? Why is God so determined to tear down my house, this good life that I've built for myself? Why is heaven so intent on interfering with the narrative that caused me to have some semblance of peace in this crazy world? Why would God be angry with me about this? We believers have to be transparent and considerate of these questions. We must be considerate of this frustration as we speak to the world about the truth of God. We have to first acknowledge that mankind has done a fair job of eking out a meaningful existence in this world. We have to respect the struggle that so many people experience every day as they try to find their way in this perplexing labyrinth of life. We have to give credence in fact that life in this world is in fact hard. But simultaneously, we must remain in lockstep with the truth of God and we must confess to the unbeliever that while life may be hard, it really doesn't have to be. And God is angry at their unbelief not because God is jealous of their accomplishment, not because God wants to rain on their parade, but because mankind has failed to recognize that he himself, God himself, is the reason for their existence. That God himself is responsible for all of their accomplishments. That God is the ground and the very source of their existence and of their sustainment. God is angry with the unrighteous skepticism of the unbeliever. Because Paul says, that which is known about God is evident within them. You heard that right. That which is known about God is evident within them. That the truth of God and all that is known about God is evident. In every human soul and the truth is that no man no woman has ever been independent not one day of their lives from God that no man or woman has made a way for themselves in any sense But this breath of life that God breathed into the first man continues to resuscitate, to revive, and to breathe new life into the nostrils of every human soul since the beginning. We have never been separate from God. That humanity is made in the image and the likeness of God. And the truth of God, the fact of God, the undeniable reality of the existence of God is supported by the existence of every human soul. In other words, humanity is the highest proof of the truth and reality of God. And Paul says that every day and with every breath God makes this truth evident to every single person, believer, unbeliever. But this truth of God, the love of God, and the power of God, the very reason each human persists to this day is the very truth that humanity seeks to eradicate. What the unbeliever fails to comprehend is that to eradicate the truth of God is to eradicate his own self. In Acts chapter 17, 28, 28, Paul explains, And we would cease to exist so that the rejection and the resistance to the truth of God is the rejection and resistance to my own existence. If God does not exist neither do I. Which makes Descartes most defining revelation the epitome of vanity and of human self-deception. You know what Descartes said. Descartes, after months and months of his foolish quest to find proof of his own existence, he wrongly concludes, I think, therefore I am. Hmm. But no, man, no, no, that's not right. You think because God is. Your ability to think, your ability to process is not the result of your existence but proof that there is a God who facilitates your ability to know. You think because God is. Humanism wants to tell us that we think because we're powerful. We think therefore we are. And in the ignorance and arrogance of mankind, we have wholly evicted God from our thoughts and from our conversation, opting instead for our own renditions, our own iterations of what life is supposed to be. Hmm. But Paul advises us here that our existence and all of creation was not designed to promote self-aggrandizement. He says in verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The truth of God, Paul says, is evident, it's apparent. Not only within man, but in all that God has created. You cannot deny it. You cannot avoid it. You cannot get away from it. But oh, how we try. And as humanity continues to evolve, we seem to become more and more proficient at avoiding God. More and more proficient at resisting God. Our iPhones and our tablets... The television and social media, gaming, we devise alternative worlds, alternative communities. We even alter our own persons and the narratives of our own lives, trying to avoid God. And by these ill-advised pursuits, we hide our heads in the proverbial sand so that we do not have to be reminded of God. Not through the singing of a bird, not in the majesty of the mountains, and especially not in the drumbeat of our own hearts that so loudly declare and proclaim to us that God is. And even the lowest, even the worst sinner cannot help but hear it. No matter how many distractions we create for ourselves to resist the truth. Because the truth of God is always present with every person and in every person whether we choose to acknowledge him or not. And for this reason, because they refuse to acknowledge the truth, they, Paul says, are without any excuse God has made his presence and his purpose known in everything that exists. If you've ever seen a mountain, if you've ever heard a bird sing, you have heard the preaching of the good news. All of creation preaches a sermon each and every day and even your own heart preaches the same sermon each and every day that God is. (laughs) Even the atheists, The same song sings in the heart of every atheist. God is. That's why he's so frustrated. Because he can't get away from the sound. Because the sound is in him. The sound of God. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, Paul says. This is not an assumption on Paul's part. Paul is not assuming that they knew God. Paul is saying directly that they, though they wish they didn't, they know God. If they recognize themselves, they recognize God. (laughs) If they acknowledge themselves, they have to acknowledge God. They may not be aware that they know God, but God is evident in them. And anytime they acknowledge themselves, they cannot help but to acknowledge God. In him we live and move and have our being. Without him there is no we. But even though each each and every day they are engaged and confronted by the truth of God in their own lives, in their own hearts, Paul says they did not honor him as God. They recognized him but they named him something else. They didn't name him God, they named him something else. They named him luck. They named him fate. They named him hard work and determination, tenacity, and the power of the human spirit. They gave God a different name. They refused to give honor where honor is truly due. Paul says, and they do not give thanks. They're not grateful, not grateful to God in any way. Instead, they're grateful that they give credit to something else, to someone else. Most often, they give credit to themselves. Paul says, but they became futile in their reasonings. Let's break that down for them. They became futile in their reasoning. They became worthless in their reasoning. How did that happen? Well, they became worthless because they did not recognize the worth of God. Their determination to degrade God and to take God down from his throne has resulted in the degradation of their own selves. You cannot degrade God without degrading yourself. You cannot speak ill of God without speaking ill of yourself. They became worthless. They became empty. Like an abandoned building, they became empty. They evicted God from their consciences. And now they live their lives with a profound sense of emptiness, unsatisfied. Every day searching, trying to find something, trying to find someone to fill the void that they themselves have created, someone to fill the crater that they have created inside of their own souls. Their ego's not big enough to replace God. Their impotent and small human spirit is not powerful enough to supplant the spirit of God. They are empty. They became worthless. They became devalued. They became empty because they evicted God from their hearts and they became purposeless. Moving in all directions at once, always in a hurry to go nowhere, unable to differentiate between east and west, north and south, up and down like feathers in the wind, moved purely by emotion, by opinion, and under the influence of the crowd. This is the result of their misidentifying God, their misguided pursuit of a life without him. But their worthless thoughts, their empty souls, their purposeless existence is not the worst part of the repercussion. Paul says, their senseless hearts were darkened. Imagine how desperate is their situation. They feel bad about themselves and their lives. They struggle with persistent bouts of emptiness. They cannot fathom why they're even in the world. They have no purpose. And now Paul says, on top of all of that, they are covered in utter darkness. And not just spiritual darkness, but emotional darkness. They have a dark outlook on today and on their future, covered in darkness. And in their pride, they surmise that a life devoid of God, even if it means dwelling in darkness, is better than a life with God. And so they persist in their resistance of Almighty God. They spend their days making excuses for the darkness, trying to make sense of their darkness, taking medications to ward off their spiritual blues. And in an act of true self-deception, they learn to wear their mental weaknesses, their depression and their anxiety. They learn to wear their mental weaknesses like badges of honor. They brag about not feeling valued. They take comfort in their feelings of despair and the rest of the world applauds them. If you want to get recognition, attention, if you want to get applause, just say that you have a mental illness, I'm feeling dark, I'm feeling blue. The tennis players, I can't play today, I feel dark, I feel blue. Next thing you know, everybody in the Olympics starts feeling blue every day and the world says, good for them, they're coming out and being honest, they're being authentic. They call this and they, 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 they treat this desperate state of mental affairs and internal affairs and their ability uh, to outmaneuver their emotions. They call this wisdom. I know how to live with my problem. I know how to live in the darkness. I know how to navigate the dark path without God. They call this wisdom. Paul says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They made a fool of themselves. They tricked themselves into selling their birthright for fleeting pleasure and self-pacification. They replaced God's care with their own self-care, God's thoughts for the thoughts and the opinions of the masses and they join in the parade of fools headed for eternal destruction. Not only this, but Paul says, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind. They worship humanity. As it was back then, so it is today. We worship humanity, we're humanistic. Be a good human, be a kind human. We praise humanity. We worship the strong man. We follow the prescriptions of the rich and the famous. Paul says, not only that, they even worship nature. They worship the birds. They worship four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Hmm. But each of these, mankind, birds, bulls, and snakes, whatever it is, all of these were telling them the same story unbeknown to them. All of them declare the glory of God. But the foolish man, Resists the message that speaks beyond what he can perceive with his eyes or hear with his ears and perceive in his carnal mind. Because the truth of God is only spiritually discerned. So he worships the form rather than the truth. This non believer has given up on God. Because an all-knowing God illuminates the fact that he himself does not know. An all-powerful God diminishes his personal power. And in her ignorance, she perceives that an omnipresent God restricts her movement toward becoming whatever and whomever she wants to be. I can't have a God like that in my life. I don't feel free. He won't let me do what I choose. He won't let me be who I want to be. And so he resists God. He doesn't want his ego to be checked. The unrighteous person has given up on God. And therefore, in verse 24, Paul concludes that God gave them up. Here's the bad news. Paul says, God gave them up. This is the culmination and the semi-final determination of God toward all those who resist him. God gave them up, God gave up. How many times do you read that in the Bible? God quit, God resigned, God gave up. How many times do you read that? Surprisingly, you read that a number of times in the Bible that God gave up. The one most prominent of all of the scripture is the flood that's found in Genesis chapter 6 to chapter 9. You can read that. You should read that this week on your own to see how God just gave up. But for today, I only want to call our attention to God's reason for giving up. God's reason for flooding the whole world found in Genesis chapter six, verse three, when God simply says this, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is also flesh. My spirit will not always strive with man, for he is also flesh. I am not going to keep doing this forever, God says. I will not be dishonored forever, God says. I will not be ridiculed and evicted from my own house forever. I am not going to remain silent forever. God has been saying this since the beginning. But the Bible says that God waits so that he might be gracious. God holds back his wrath because he desires to be gracious. But he says, the fact of the matter is man, the fact of the matter is woman, that my spirit will not continue to contend with you forever. I will not continue forever to try to demand and find a place in your heart. This is not going to carry on forever. He's been saying that since the beginning. And year by year, week by week, God's response of wrath has been measured and proportional. And as we look around at our world today, we can clearly see that God is growing more and more impatient with man. That God, by degrees, is giving up on humanity slowly and steadily. God is giving up. God gave them up to vile impurity in the lusts of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That's what you want, God says finally. That's what you want, then have at it. God has been arguing with humanity for a very long time. Jesus tried to reveal God the Father to his own people for at least three years and likely more than just three years. And finally, at the end, he sits there upon on the hill and he looks down and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I long to cuddle you like a hen does her chicks. But you kept resisting. And now I give. The atheist would love to hear that. Good, finally. I don't need to hear about you anymore. Good, finally, you're out of my life. I don't have to spend my time resisting your truth. Good, I'm glad you're gone because he doesn't understand what that means. Without God, he is nothing. Without God, his life is worthless. He doesn't even understand what he's saying. The last thing he wants is for God to turn his back and walk away. Let me tell you something. Even Christians should be concerned about this. The Bible says it is possible even for the Christian to frustrate the Holy Spirit. You know how sometimes you sin and you feel that conviction from the Holy Spirit that was wrong? I shouldn't have done that. He convicts you. That's a good thing. He's chastising you. He's engaging you. But if you keep committing the same sin long enough, after a while, his voice becomes more and more muted. And if you push him too far, he will give up on you and step back. You've chosen to go in that direction. I've tried to stop you. I've tried to warn you. You refuse to listen. You are resisting the truth. I give up. Now deal with the consequences of your sin. He does that even to Christians. He chastises even believers by allowing us to run headlong into the thing that we're lusting after. And we say, good, I'm free to do what I want then the consequences of darkness and depression, of confusion and desperation, of anxiety and fear. And this is what he was trying to protect us from all along. Without me, you are nothing. Without me, Satan will run rapid in your life and will drive you to suicide. Without me, you are unprotected in a violent and a dangerous world. Don't give up on God. Even when you don't understand, even when you can't figure out what he's doing, don't give up, lest God gives up. And if God gives you up, only trouble can, can. He's been arguing with humanity for a long time. He's been arguing with some of us for a long time. Those habits that we refuse to quit. He's been arguing with you for a long time, it's time to listen to the truth, to stop pursuing your own desires and your own will, but say to him, not my will, but your will be done. Because the last thing we want is for God to give up on us. The only person who is keeping Satan from annihilating this entire world. God. But as God retreats, as God decides that he is no longer going to continue to be that hedge of protection that gives us boundary, as God more and more acquiesces to our rebellious attitudes and our demands for self-direction, this world becomes less and less habitable because our adversary gains more and more sway over humanity, plunging us deeper and deeper into the darkness of our own ungodly desires, which ultimately lead us further and further away from God and permanently mark us for the day of destruction. The message for them, the message for us is simple. Do not resist the truth of God. Do not attempt to subjugate God's truth to your opinion or to the opinion of the masses. It will not work. And you will never win. Every child of God to some degree, brothers and sisters, is resisting God. Did you know that? Every one of us in this room is to some degree resisting the truth of God. If that were not the case, there would be no need for sanctification. All of us are being sanctified. There are some aspects of each one of our lives, of each one of our hearts, that we have not wholly and completely submitted and surrendered to Jesus Christ. Every person, to some degree, is resisting God. My call to us today is that we would examine our own hearts. It's easy to preach this message against the world and say how bad the world is, but the message is for us. The lesson is for us. Examine your heart. Identify those aspects of your own life that you have not surrendered. Be honest about the places in your life where you are continuing to resist the truth of God. And today, repent and surrender. Because if you give up on God, and you persist, sooner or later, God will give up on you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are love. You are not wrath. You are love. But you teach us in your word that you're angry with the unrighteous every single day. We confess and we expose and we ask you to sign the light of your Holy Spirit on those aspects of ourselves that have not yet been made righteous. Those aspects of ourselves, of our thoughts, of our emotions, of our attitudes that have not yet been sanctified. We confess today that we have independent streaks where we want to do things our own way, where we want to have life our own way. We confess that today and we repent to you. You promised us in your word that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and you're just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, we have decided to not resist. To not find justifications for our actions. To not make excuses. But to reflect upon and to accept the truth that you are in our hearts and that you are aware of our every emotion, our every intention. You know the places where we're resisting you. We ask you today to shine a light in our hearts, to show us those places. Give us the ability and give us the will to surrender our all.